Our sermon text here this evening is Psalm 10, which we'll read in just a moment. Before we read Psalm 10, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing upon his word. Please, if you'd bow your heads and join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we find the words in your holy scriptures that all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so, Father, we pray that we would be given meek and humble hearts that are willing to accept your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God, that we may live under the sound of the word of God and according to the precepts that you teach us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 10, starting at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Now, I don't know each and every one of you how many popular songs you listened to in your younger days. And I know some of you are still quite young, so, you know, you're not really uh, reminiscing the way that I'm reminiscing. I'm, I'm thinking of a time over 30 years ago before I was a Christian. How many popular songs you listened to and how many popular songs you might have at one time or another thought were your favourite and you thought they were really good songs, you know, deep and meaningful and what a great love song and, you know, what that song, that really, that really touches something, that means something to me. And then I've got to say now after being a Christian for 30 years and growing in the knowledge of the Lord and growing um, in the knowledge and understanding of the Scripture by the grace of God, when I go back to those songs that I used to listen to, I actually still quite like the melodies and the music, the same kind of music that I've always liked, I still like. But with regards to the words, the lyrical content of these songs, it just seems to me to be cheesy, trite, lightweight, meaningless nonsense. They don't actually mean anything to me. I find if I'm going to enjoy any of those songs from yesteryear, or at least yesteryear in my life, I might hum the tune or I might whistle the tune but I just couldn't be bothered singing the words. They're just not worth the effort. They're just nonsense. Worldly, shallow, vacuous nonsense. Well, what I think as Christians we've got to be hoping for with regards to God's songbook, the Psalms, is the opposite process. 
As time goes by, the words that we find written for us in the Psalms, the songs of God's people that have been recorded for us as the book of Psalms, they should be meaning more and more to us. We should be growing in our depth and, and understanding in, in, in the depth of our understanding of these psalms, we should be growing in our appreciation of them. And I could honestly imagine that if you're on a regular read through the Bible program and you read Psalm 10, in a way you might wonder to yourself, well, what was that about? What do I get out of that? Does that really mean much to me? And, and I'm sure you're not being disrespectful in that way. It just seems to be far removed from us, from our day, from our understanding of the way we should think of things as Christians. But when we study the Psalms carefully and when we study them in their context and when we study them in terms of what they are in Scripture concerning God's ultimate revelation of himself through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find that the Psalms, and even a Psalm like Psalm 10, where you find that prayer, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, call his wickedness to account till you find none, you'll find that you can get a whole lot of very worthwhile food and spiritual nourishment in reading the Psalms. So what should we know about Psalm 10 itself? Although in our Bibles you'll see no um, heading, for example, Psalm 11 reads to the choir master of David. And Psalm 9 reads, to the choir master according to Muthleben, a psalm of David. Psalm, in Psalm 10 you find no heading. Yet in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek version of the Bible, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 were actually one and one only long psalm, which leads to the conclusion that Psalm 10 is most likely also a psalm of David, written by David usually sung immediately after what we would call Psalm 9. And in some ways, Psalm 10 fits perfectly with Psalm 9. Psalm 9, if you, if you wanted to think of Psalm 9 and Psalm, Psalm 10 as one large acrostic poem, and you, you know what an acrostic is? Where, where the words of the, fir, the, the first letter of the first line, if you read just the first letter of the first line, you get something, well... Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are loosely based on the Hebrew alphabet. We would say from A to Z, forming a large acrostic. Psalm 10 is the latter part of a large acrostic psalm and travels on from Psalm 9. Psalm 9 finishes at verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Reading directly on, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Interesting. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Let's put some thought just into that question. Who's speaking? King David. What was King David to do, to be? The Lord raised him up from being a shepherd boy following after the sheep that belonged to his father, Jesse, and made him shepherd over his own people, the people of Israel. David was now in charge of the protection of and the caring for and the feeding of God's own flock, the people of Israel. Think of that. What an overwhelming job. What an overwhelming job, surrounded by hostile nations. Remember, in this day and in the day and age in which David wrote, nations were religious entities. We don't, we don't like the idea of theocracy these days. We don't like the idea of a religious nation. Back in that day, that's what a nation was. Each nation had its own gods. Each nation had a ruler who ruled according to the to the whims of the gods of that nation in accordance with the religion of that nation. There was only one nation on earth which had for God the one true living God, the nation of Israel. Israel was surrounded by idolatrous pagan nations which practised idolatrous 
pagan and often occultish religions. In other words, on every border, conflict. In every meeting of the people of God and the people of the nations surrounding, conflict. Every incursion of the religion of those nations out and about into the religion of the Israelites brought about conflict. False religion versus true religion. If the people of God were obedient to the commandments of God, you would think, therefore, all David had to worry about as king was his borders. If the people were keeping the commands, not stealing, not murdering, not committing adultery, not, not worshipping idols, not being covetous, keeping the Sabbath, all of those things that God requires, having no other God than God, well, David as king would have had what mission? Look to the borders. Keep the borders strong. Keep the outsiders out. Keep the insiders in. The nation will take care of itself. But David, as the shepherd of the people of God, found that most of his troubles were arising not from outside of his borders, but from within. The wickedness that he had to deal with so often was wickedness within. Imagine you're charged with pastoring a nation. A nation that the scripture calls stiff-necked and stubborn. A difficult people. And you're aware of your own humanity, your own failings. And you're aware that things are not the way they ought to be, either within your nation or outside of it. And so in trouble, he cries out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Should you take such things literally? Think about it. Answer, no. Why? Because if God were literally standing far away, he wouldn't hear the prayer of David. God is not a man that he can be far away. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The prayer of the king is the nation is troubled. There are problems. I'm but a man. Where's the help that you promised me? Where is the help that you promised me? David then speaks to God concerning the behaviour of those who trouble him. Now, here we have a breakdown, as it were, of sinners. Let's look at what kind of people they would be, these people who trouble the people of God. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Now, poor, I don't think this is necessarily meaning poor, only has $5 to his name. This is the weak, the bold, the boastful, the arrogant. They're always on the lookout for victims. They're always on the lookout for people whom they can hurt easily, from whom they can steal easily. They hotly pursue the poor. Let them, the arrogant, be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Turn to Exodus chapter 5. Reading at verse 1 and then on to verse 2. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? Your English translations will say the Lord. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is he? Notice what David, now if if you want to um, have a thumb at Psalm 10 and turn back there. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces Yahweh. 
curses and renounces. What does scripture tell us about people? All people, everyone who's ever born, everyone who's ever lived. They're born with a knowledge of God. An awareness of the presence of God who created all things. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. To renounce something, you must have known what it is that you are renouncing, disclaiming, refusing to have anything to do with. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is Yahweh? Well, Scripture tells us that as Moses and Aaron have preached to him, he knows who Yahweh is. Remember, God is a communicating God and he communicates not only through creation, but through words. He'd been preached to. The message had come. When a message comes from God, it always comes with, as it were, threatenings and promises. For an example, turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 and look to verse 18. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Blessings for listening. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's always this way with the word of God. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. You shall receive the promises of God. You shall walk in a place of blessing. Long shall you live in the land of blessing. It shall bear its fruit in its season. If you are willing and obedient. But notice, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. Why? For these words come from the Lord. For these words come from the Lord. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All who refuse to hear the word of the Lord, those words are followed by swords. Those words are followed by the punishment of God. Looking back into Psalm 10, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. You see, greed, greed, the desire for something that God has not given you, given to you. Covetousness. I'm not satisfied with my lot. I want more. I want everything. You know, I started off mentioning some lightweight, terrible songs. I want it all. I want it all and I want it now. I want it all, I want it all and I want it now. The man who sung it is dead. Died of AIDS. He wanted something. I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. They know something. The most wicked people the world has ever known know something. They're what the Bible calls apostates. They have a knowledge of God which they consciously and deliberately turn away from. Hitler, in Mein Kampf, quoted Bible verses. I've read it. Out of context, devoid of their true biblical meaning, but he knew enough Bible verses to quote Bible verses. Stalin, one of the greatest mass murderers and most evil men the world has ever seen, was a dropped-out seminary student. First move after high school for Stalin was to go to seminary. 
one who knew something, at least something of God. And in his greed for gain, in their lust for power, in their desire to shape the world according to their own desires, they renounce the Lord. The most wicked people, the most harmful people to the people of God are the apostate. Those who know something and renounce what they know. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. That is the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That's what they like to tell themselves. There is no God. Or at least they'll tell themselves, if there is a God, he's not the God of the Bible, which is basically to say the same thing. There is no God. You see, the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible pays attention. Verse 14 of Psalm 10 reads, But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. God does see. But the wicked, the apostate, the one who renounces God, will then go on to try and tell you that there is no God. Have you noticed that when a person claims to be an atheist, the very first God they reject is the God of Scripture, the God of Holy Scripture, the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God, God who is holy, 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 God who is righteous. All his thoughts are there is no God. Why would that be in all of their thoughts? Well, when, you, when you're seeking to convince yourself of a lie, it takes some doing. When you know that something is true but you don't like the truth, what you need to do is to convince yourself of a lie so that you can ignore the truth. And so you run the lie through your mind again and again and again. There is no God. Therefore, that thievery means nothing. There is no God. Therefore, that fornication means nothing. There is no God. Therefore, that murder means nothing. All his thoughts are, there is no God. At verse 5, we're told something interesting. His ways prosper at all times. It goes well for people who walk with the world, who are part of the system, who milk the system, who ride the system. There's money to be made out there. There's fun to be had out there. If you want it, fit in. All you have to do is fit in, march to our beat. Have you ever thought, have you ever seen video of a rock concert? I mean a big concert, you know, where you've got tens of thousands of people and you've got some musicians on a, on a stage that sits about 20 or 30 feet above this audience of tens of thousands of people. And have you ever noticed every now and then, and I'm thinking of a few particular concerts I've seen, you've got three or four musicians, they're standing in a line across the front of a stage. They go like this, jumping up and down in time with the music. And then the camera pans out across this audience of 50 or 60,000 people. And what do you see of the 50 or 60,000 heads of the people? 50 or 60,000 people. All at one. All in time. Whatever they see their idols upon the stage doing, they imitate it. The last time I went to a rock concert, I realised something. It was years ago, but I realised something, and I'd never realised this before. I went to a big concert, massive band, popular, worldwide popular. This is a religious service. This is a religious happening. This is an idolatrous festival. I'd never realised it before. But as I was there, I realised that's what's happening. There were about 20,000 people at the venue. Everyone was seated. The lights were dark. And then in the shadows, 
Six men, you could see them walk along a gangway onto this large stage. 20,000 people stood to their feet. Music starts. 20,000 people moving in time to the music. Songs are sung. 20,000 people singing those same songs. Particular songs start, which are, are um, like cues or, or keys for people to do certain things. The guitarist plays a particular note and suddenly 20,000 people start singing a wordless tune. Oh, oh, oh. 20,000 people. A religious happening. It's a religion. It's an idolatrous religion. Included in the stage show is an idol, a robotic idol, which walks out, stands at the edge of the stage in front of the people. They're all going crazy for the idol. Literally an idol. Giving life to the image of the beast. That's the religion of the world. There was money made there. Everyone paid good money for those tickets. I think I paid $75 for mine. They won't get that money again off me, I can assure you. But I think I paid $75 for mine. I'm not, I'm not quite mathematically astute enough to run those numbers through my head, but if it's 20,000 people paying $75, well, that's a lot of money. A thousand, what's that? That's seventy-five thousand. Ten thousand, that's seven hundred and fifty thousand. Twenty thousand, one and a half million dollars in ticket sales that night. It's a religion. And the singer's the preacher. And the musicians were his assistant. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. They're riding the world. They're riding the mood of the world. They're on a, they're on a big, they're on a big ride and collecting the money along the way. What does the psalmist say of them? Your judgments. Remember, the psalmist is speaking to God. Your judgments are on high, out of His sight. They don't understand. They don't understand. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. They don't understand. Let's use those, those musicians as the picture. They think that all is going well. We're making millions and millions of people the world over love us and millions of people the world over hang off our every word and we get whatever we want. Girls, gold, glory. People cheer us. All we have to do is walk on stage and people rise to their feet and cheer. We're getting everything we want. We lack nothing. But what does Scripture tell us about a sinner who has hardened their heart against God, a sinner who is trying to convince themselves that there is no God? What's the first initial punishment for slavery to sin? Sin brings increased slavery to sin. Choosing to knowingly, deliberately sin against God, to refuse the word of God, to reject God's call of repentance and faith, brings increased sin. They think that their success is a sign of blessing. Scripture tells me that their success is a sign of cursing. They're hardened in their sins. They're sent further along their way towards the very gates of hell. Oh, it's good. It's great. We get whatever we want. We spend whatever we want. We buy whatever we want. We do whatever we want. We're big stars wherever we go. They haven't got that long to live. They haven't got that long to live. What are they going to take with them to the grave? What position are they going to have? What glory are they going to receive? None at all. 
They're being given over to their sins. God's judgments are on high. God's judgments are out of their sight. And so they think this is great. It's all working out according to plan. They're being left to their own devices. You know, it's, have, you, have you ever swum in a tidal river, you know, somewhere near the beach where those little tidal streams flow out to the water? It's a lot of fun. If you want to feel like you can swim as fast as an Olympic swimmer, Jump in 100 metres upstream on the outgoing tide and swim towards, swim towards the ocean as the tide takes you out. Well, you can swim fast. You're motoring along. You feel like you're as fast as a speedboat. And they're swimming with the tide. All their paths are roadways to hell. You know, they're, they're running hard downhill all the way. We've got a uh, we've got a little uh, saying in the truck driving industry. We call it angel overdrive. Angel overdrive. What does that mean? Well, you get a heavily laden truck, you put it at the top of the hill, put it in neutral, and let gravity do the work, and you're in angel overdrive. And at the bottom of the hill, they can be moving really fast, 160 kilometres per hour. Not unusual. Angel overdrive. They're running downhill. They're running with the stream. Their ways prosper at all times. God's judgments, out of sight. <laughs> you know, they don't see the reality. They're closing their eyes to it. As for all his foes, last part of verse 5, he puffs at them, blows at them. Someone sends them a warning. One day you'll answer to God for all that you're doing and their answer... What's God got to do with anything? What can God do to me? Your God, I say, is not there. There is no God. They imagine that they're setting up a dynasty. They imagine that they're setting up something permanent. Notice it says, throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Thinking of another one of those popular songs from yesteryear, from my misspent youth. Hey, hey, my, my, rock and roll will never die. Famous song, if anyone's ever heard it. Hey, hey, my, my, rock and roll will never die. You know what? It will. Foolishness, foolish boastings. Hey, hey, my, my, throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Not such good poetry. But that's the boast. That's the boast. Throughout all generations, I'll be remembered. My children will be wealthy throughout all generations because of what I've done for them. I've set them up. I've got it all. But Scripture says, your judgments are on high. And what does God say concerning his judgments of the wicked? Let's have a look in a few different places. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Concerning idolatry. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Exodus chapter 20 verse 4. Sorry, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. These supposed great ones in the world, they've made their millions, for example, from the entertainment industry, from the promotion of idolatry and sexual impurity and all the other wickedness that goes into the fame game these days. How many of them have happy children and happy grandchildren? What, is, that, is that what we hear about their, their, um, their, their ascending generations or their preceding generations? Is that what we hear about their children, about their marriages, about their home lives? 
It's not, is it? They're accomplishing nothing on behalf of their children. They're accomplishing nothing on behalf of their generations. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. But scripture says that God does see. He notes mischief and vexation that he may take it into his hands. And God says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. We'll turn to Exodus chapter 34. The Lord speaking to Moses, Moses said, show me your glory. And so the Lord passed before Moses and allowed Moses to see his hindermost parts at verse six. Exodus 34, six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who are by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. They say throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. God says, I will visit your iniquity upon your children to the third and the fourth generation. They say, I'm building an empire, a kingdom, something that will last forever and ever. My name will be great. God says, you are but a man. You will be nothing and nobody and you will be forgotten. Hey, hey, my, my, rock and roll is going to die. Psalm 10 at verse 7. His mouth is is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. You don't get truth from the mouth of these people. You don't get wisdom. You don't get words that bring life. Cursing. Deceit, lies and oppression filled with power. They want their way and they don't care how they get it and they don't care what they do to people to get it. Oppression. You'll do as I say for my benefit. I don't care. Oppression. It appears to me that man-made governments can't give freedom, but they can take it. They can't give freedom, but they can take it. They constantly undermine freedom. God gave ten commandments. Live according to these words and things will go well for you in the land that I have promised you. Ten, only ten. And the people said, no, but we want a king. Remember? In 1 Samuel, no, but we want a king. Samuel warned them, you want a king. Your king will take your sons. Your king will take your daughters. Your king will take your food. Your king will glorify himself. Your king will build an army. Your king will multiply his own glory. And the people said, no, but we want a king. We want a king. Oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity, sin. Think of all that we've heard from the book of James in the weeks that have gone by. Sin. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Think of um, one of those rock-hard, breath-freshening mint that you can hold in your mouth under your tongue for hours and hours if you've got the patience not to bite it. And so if you've got one of those under your tongue, well, if anyone was standing close enough, they would smell the breath-freshening mint. They would get a whiff of something that you're um, holding under your tongue. Well, the picture here is not a breath-freshening mint, is it? Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity, sin, corruption, evil. People get close enough. What do they get from your mouth? They get wickedness, evil. This is the way of the enemy of God. This is the way of the one who renounces the Lord. This is the way of the apostate. Verse 8, he sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor, that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor and he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. 
They're always looking for the easiest victim. They're always looking for the weak one, the one they can pick off. The psalmist mentions the hunting cat. Well, have you watched enough nature videos to see the way they do it? What are they always looking for? The isolated victim, the one that the pride can cut off, the one that doesn't run quite fast enough or run quite soon enough. They're always looking for the easy victim. They're always looking for the one that they can take without a struggle, with minimum risk to themselves. The one who renounces God, this study of sinners, is a bully. A bully. Bullies always look for people they can dominate. They're always looking for the weak-minded. They're always looking for the one that they can have mental power over. They're not courageous. There's nothing noble about these people. Verse 11, once again, it's it's already said, all his thoughts are at verse 4, there is no God. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. Funny, isn't it? The cry of the psalmist at verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? What's the psalmist saying? Lord, fulfil your promises. Lord, you've made me shepherd over your people. The job is too big for me. I need your help. I need you to get involved. I personally need to know your presence. What did Jesus say upon the cross? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? But his God was never far away. And the psalmist's God is not far away. Why would the psalmist be speaking if God were far away? But look at the fool, look at the wicked. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Not only do they like to tell themselves there is no God, and try to convince themselves of that lie. But when they speak of God, they speak of God in human terms. It's called blasphemy. He says in his heart, he blasphemes. He ascribes humanity to divinity. He's blaspheming. You see, a man might forget. My memory is not perfect. I might forget things. He has hidden his face. I only see the things that are in front of me. I'm human. He will never see it. Time, to me, can only be experienced in the instant. If it happened before, I can't go back and see it. And if it's going to happen in the future, I can't reach forward to see it. I can only see what is in front of me here and now. Sometimes as I sit here, there there are windows behind me and I see faces, eyes looking through the windows. I wonder, what are they looking at? What are they seeing out there? I've heard that there are eagles around here and eagles go flying past and maybe there are parrots landing in the trees behind me and stuff like that. I'm not sure. But my eyes are this way. And I don't see much through those windows at the back of the room. My eyes are this way. That stuff is hidden from my face. I don't see it. And this sinner is saying that God is like, well, for example, me. I look that way. I don't see what's happening back there. Something might have happened and I might already have forgotten that it happened. My wife tells me something I need to know and something I need to do and I honestly forget it. She gave me a letter to post three weeks ago. I was at a post office yesterday and I conducted the transaction that I needed to conduct and I was in the car on the way home and at that moment I remembered the letter that my wife had given me three weeks ago to post. I had forgotten it and it remains unsent. Apologies. (laughs) And they ascribe humanity to divinity and they blaspheme. 
God has forgotten. Whatever I did, it's not on God's mind. God has hidden his face. I was doing something over there and God happened to be looking that way at that moment. He will never see it. It's gone. It's in the past. It's finished. He will never see it. They make out that God is less than God has said he is. Do you want to know God for who God is? Well, then you must accept everything that God has to say about himself. God says he is all-powerful. Don't try and weasel out of that. He is all-powerful. God says he is all-knowing. Don't try and weasel out of that. He is all-knowing. God says he hears the very thoughts of your heart. Don't try and weasel out of that. He hears the very thoughts of your heart. He knows all things. He forgets no thing. His judgments are perfect and just. But the wicked, lying first of all to himself. In the New Testament, there's that phrase, deceived and deceiving. The Apostle Paul used it to speak of sinners. He called them deceived and deceiving. The wicked is deceived and deceiving. He first of all deceives himself. God is like a man. God has forgotten. God has hidden his face. He will never see it. There is no God. The God that you claim exists. No such thing exists. No one. No person. That God does not exist. And look at the response of the psalmist. Arise, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? That's a good question. Why? He's calling for what's called a theodicy. A theodicy. What's that? A justification of the ways of God. An explanation as to why there is, for example, evil in God's creation. God is good and only good. God does only good things. Why then did God create one whom we now call Satan, who fell into sin and worked all the evil and the wicked that we see in the world? Is God responsible in some way for the evil that exists? God is not morally responsible for evil. God only does that which is right. There is nothing of which we can accuse him. We can ask the questions. We can, we can plead our ignorance. Why? Remember, he's asking God, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Why? Why, God, do you allow these things to happen? Why do you allow such things to happen in the world? Just briefly, since I've raised the question, I give the only answer that can be given and the only answer that Scripture gives. God does all things according to his glory. And God's glory is so great and so good that in any way that God chooses to reveal his glory, it is good for God to do that. God's goodness is so good that it justifies the means by which he reveals his goodness. We're people. Our ends do not justify our means. All the wicked tyrants of history have all claimed that they were doing good. Good for humanity, good for this race, good for that race, good for the theory of evolution. They're doing what is good, what is best. They claim they're doing what is best for their nation and that this justifies whatever it is that they do. No, they are human. It does not justify the means which they use to reach their ends. They are evil and they are doing evil. But God, with his aim, his ends of revealing his glory throughout all creation to as many as possible according to truth, God, in revealing his glory, is doing good by whatever means he chooses to reveal his glory. And I'm not saying that evil is good, but I'm saying that in some way it is good that God has permitted or even if you want to use the word ordained that evil exists for the purpose of revealing his glory. God is greater than we are. God is greater than we are. True worship involves the submission to that which we cannot understand. 
We can argue things through to a certain point of human understanding, but then after that you simply must worship God because God is God and understanding can take you no further. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But then the psalmist remembers the God whom he worships. But you do see, you do see, you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. David may have been appointed the shepherd of God's people, Israel, but David knew something, that God himself was the shepherd of his own people. Simply in expressing his troubles, in, in making his cry, as it were, for help, help me as I battle with the evil ones, David remembers the God to whom he is praying and he remembers what his God is like. You do see, you are paying attention, you note mischief and vexation, you will take these things into your hands. And that's why the helpless commits himself to you and you are the helper of the fatherless. And so he calls for justice. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Do you cry out for justice in the world? Do you see wickedness everywhere you look? Do you commit it to God? Do you hand it over to God for the judgment of God? Remember, the context in which David prays is the context of the nation of Israel surrounded by evil nations and filled with lawbreakers who want to harm the people of God. I shouldn't say filled with, but at least there is a significant proportion and population of lawbreakers seeking to harm the people of God. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Break down their power. Take away their power. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Remember, David, you know, he, he realised that one of the many blessings he had received is that his sins were covered, that the Lord had not taken his iniquities into account. Psalm 32, verse 1, we looked at it this morning. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. But David is saying to the Lord concerning these wicked ones, count it. Take their wickedness to account till you find none. Count it. He's handing them over to God for God to deal with them as God pleases. There's wickedness in the world today. The nation's plot and scheme. Wicked ones do evil things. I do pray that the Lord brings that evil to an end. Ultimately, in the day of judgment, I know that he will call all things to account. He does see. He notes mischief and vexation that he may take it into his hands. But I'm praying for it even now. Even now, it's only right that we as the people of God should want the world to live in godly fear. It's only right that we should want the system under which we live to be as godly as it is possible for one to be in a time such as ours. The psalmist finishes praising God. Verse 16. Yahweh is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Notice the true believer. The true believer. David's king, isn't he? David's been anointed king. David knows that there's a king of kings. He knows that there's a lord of lords. David knows that he, as a king, is a kind of a deputy. You know, he, he's been trusted with authority, but that authority comes from the real king. Yahweh, the Lord, is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, oh, mind you, David is king of Israel. Is Israel David's land? The, the believer, what do we remember? Everything that we have belongs to whom? God. It's God's. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, 
so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Remember our Saviour Jesus. He's the son of David. He's the one whom God promised to David, the one who would sit on a throne that would last for all eternity. The son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, he's king of kings and he's Lord of lords. He's Yahweh, the son of Yahweh. He's the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's king now. He's king forever and ever. Nations perish from his land. What nations are there in the kingdom of God? None other than the kingdom of God. What matters any nation to those who are in Christ? What matters any skin colour, any ethnicity? What matters any of those things to anyone who is in Christ? It should matter not at all. Is a person any more or less a Christian because they're Asian, African, subcontinental, European? Makes no difference. The nations perish from his land. They perish in his sight. There really are only two. There really are only two people types or two people groups in the world. There are those who are in Christ and those who are not. There are those who are in Adam and those who are not. The ones who are in Adam, they're outside of Christ. The ones who are in Christ, they're no longer in Adam. They're the people in the world. Notice what David says. You hear their desires. You strengthen their heart. You incline your ear. You incline your ear. Imagine God enthroned on high. It's a very human picture, this. You know, I've noticed as I'm getting older and, you know, my hearing's not as good as it used to be. Spent a whole life operating heavy heavy machinery. I can't filter noises very well anymore. I hear. I hear fine. I can hear music or I can hear people speak. I'm not having a problem in that way. But the problem I'm having is uh, if there's anything running in the background or at the side, I can't filter anymore. The harder I try and listen to a person speak, the more likely I am to hear the engine running in the background. And I've got to do something. You know, it's an old manish thing. I've got to get close to somebody. I've got to incline my ear. What did you say, mate? Oh, right, I've got you. And then I go back and I do whatever it was they were saying to me. Well, that's kind of the picture David's giving here of God when we speak to him. He inclines his ear. He's not saying that God is having trouble filtering out background noises. He's not saying anything like that. But what he's saying is that God loves his people and he's always wanting to, waiting to, willing to hear us speak to him. He inclines his ear. He turns his ear toward us. He loves his people. These people, the poor, who are the victims of the wicked, God is hearing their prayer. God is listening. God is paying attention. This small little church in the eyes of the world, this foolish little nothing, and that's what we are in the eyes of the world, a foolish little nothing. Well, my friends, there's a throne room in in which sits the king of all creation, the ruler of all creation. He created it, he upholds it, he administers it. A king greater than any man we can imagine greater than any earthly ruler with more power, more authority, more servants, more glory, more of everything, without limit, without measure, beyond our understanding. His throne is on high. When Isaiah saw him, his throne was high and lifted up. And guess what? His ear is inclined toward us. He's not so busy that he doesn't hear from people like you and I. His ear is inclined toward us. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. 
justice will come. Men who are wicked, who have renounced God, who are bullies, whose mouths are filled with cursing, deceit, oppression, mischief and iniquity, ambushes who stealthily watch for the helpless, their day will come. The prayers of their victims even now reach up to God. God could hear the blood of Abel crying out for vengeance. God hears the prayers of his people. Are you praying that self-glorifying foolish people who have power in this world are brought down and made to know that they are but men. Do you pray that? You ought to pray it. These boastful, strutting, ignorant politicians that get on TV spew forth a volume of lies and then imagine they're doing some great and mighty thing because their servants, the media, run around and repeat their lies again and again and again. Godless, ignorant, self-glorifying fools. And many of their aims are wicked and much of that which they are doing is outright wickedness. And they boast about the weapons that they have at hand and the orders that they can give, the buttons that they can push, the aircraft in their air force, etc., 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 God is going to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. The small people, the victims of the supposedly great people and these people who think they are great, they will strike terror no more. Our enemies will be made our footstools. That's the promise of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Turn to the book of Romans, last chapter. Think of this, Romans chapter 16, and I'm going to turn us to verse 20. Think of the time this was written. Rome, the empire, the emperor, the Roman emperor considered himself to be God. The people walked through a temple at least once a year and threw a pinch of incense on the altar, proclaiming that Caesar is Lord. Whenever Rome paid any attention to the church, to the preachers of the gospel, its purpose was to oppress them, to kill them. The apostles were put to death by Romans. Jesus himself was crucified by Romans at the behest of the Jewish leaders. Rome, the great and mighty empire, Rome, that great idolatrous power that at that time ruled all the known world. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Wow. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God hears the prayers of the fatherless. God hears the prayers of the oppressed. God hears the prayers of his people. His his ear is inclined toward them. And the day will come, Christian. The day will come. We may die, we may go beyond the grave, but the day will come when Satan will be crushed under our feet. Think of that. The wicked one, the chief of enemies, the one who was given the power of death, the accuser, the accuser of the brethren, the evil one the one who snuck into the garden, as it were, and brought down the first man. The one who tempted our Lord, the one who stirred up the accusers so that our Lord himself was put to death. The one whom the book of Revelation says has come to the earth in great fury because he knows that his time is short. The one who prowls about like a roaring lion, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Life's short. Life's short. 
Even the youngest person here has no right to expect, if all goes well, that they're going to live more than another 70 years. Life's short and you go to be with the Lord, provided you're in the Lord. If you are in Christ, you will be with Christ. It's as simple as that. And the time will come when you will put your foot, as it were, upon the neck of the great enemy of the people of God. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Our defeated enemy will be forced to acknowledge that he has been defeated. Our defeated enemy will be gazed upon and mocked. The one who is least in the kingdom of God, whoever that might be, is greater than any of the enemies of the people of God. And Satan will soon be crushed under our feet because God inclines his ear toward us and he takes mischief and vexation into account. And the day will come when he will bring evil to its end and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and we will rejoice forevermore in the presence of our Lord. So, my friends, let's be a praying people, remembering that God, our God, is great and good and he loves us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we indeed thank you for your holy songbook, the book of Psalms. We thank you, Father, that you have taught us how to pray. Help us to be diligent, to seek out and to understand your word, that we may pray according to your will, with thanksgiving, in expectation of your answering our prayer. Father, we pray that indeed you would put down those in the world who strut around, who do wickedness and who claim that they are mighty. Let the man who is of the earth remember that you alone are the one true living God, and that you rule over all of creation for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.